the United Kingdom, 1947. Following the Second World War, the Edinburgh International Festival was born. The pretext was that the many battered cities of Europe would be busy cleaning up after the war for some time, and the UK was the obvious place to create a new cultural centre. The gaze of the arts elite eventually fell on the Scottish city of Edinburgh, and a select number of mostly classical music performances were chosen as planning got underway. Meanwhile, a group of eight enterprising theatre companies decided it was the perfect time to take advantage of the audiences that would be in the city for this important event. So, according to popular history, they turned up uninvited, took over nearby venues and ran parallel performances to the main festival, essentially beginning what soon became regarded as a festival fringe. These days, the International Fringe Festival Association includes over 250 festivals across the world. This episode explores mostly one of them and tells a little bit of the extraordinary story that is the Perth Fringe World Festival in Western Australia. How it benefits audiences and the arts community, the economics of it all, and also how it has the potential to go terribly wrong. As you'll see, it's complicated. One person that's been involved in the Fringe since the beginning, in 2011, is this guy. My name is Magnus Danger Magnus, and I'm a mustachio twerp that fills in the gaps between talented people. Magnus was an MC at the very first Fringe World Festival. I think the first one was, the test one was in 2011, and, um, it was curated, there was only like a handful of shows, and I was booked by Art Rage for 30 straight days to walk around in a moustache and go, hey everybody, something fucking amazing is gonna happen over here. And then it did, and people went, oh my God, he's a genius. Somebody give this guy a job. Yeah, and so that happened. That was back before I had a moustache of my own, and I had to glue under my face. I don't know what if uh, your listeners know what Perth is like, in uh, in this city in January, but yeah, gluing anything to your face is not going to work. So I wound up after day three, I switched to super glue. Oh, so I had 27 straight days of super gluing this matted piece of shit to my top lip, which um, yeah, gave me. I looked like for at least a fortnight after we'd finished, I looked like I had a horrendous case of uh, oral herpes. So a lot of the recordings for this episode have a bit of background noise, but uh, it does represent a lot of the atmosphere around the Fringe Festival. I also spoke to some of the audience there. Here's Selena and Simon. We've just got addicted to it. We keep coming back. Okay, so you've seen some shows already? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've seen yeah. quite a few. Yeah, any favourite shows so far? Or? La Soiree. What did you like about that? Big one? hit. 20 out of 10. Really good. Excellent. It was a, a circus cabaret variety show. You know, when you sit in such close proximity to a performance and you can, you, you ride in amongst it all, you feel like you're part of the whole thing because you, you, you can smell the BO, you can get all their sweat when they, when they sweat and stuff, but uh, great show, loved it, fantastic. Another guy I met was Travis. 
We don't get out much, but when we think like Fringe is one of those events where everybody can get a chance to, you know, come out and experience like stuff in Perth. You don't usually get a lot of times in Perth where there's festivals and things like that. It's one of those times you can really get to experience stuff. I'm Silvia from Bergamo. Yeah, I'm Giacomo from Madonna di Campiglio. Sylvia and Giacomo are on holiday from Italy. We are here for a working holiday visa. We're traveling around, working a little bit. It's amazing, amazing this city. You're on so many things. And I was following a perf page on Instagram many, many times, much time before coming here. And I was always interested in this kind of festival, so it's amazing to be here for the first time and not just looking at the picture. So there's a lot of buzz around the festival this year, as always. But to tell this story correctly, I want to go back a little bit in time first to set the scene. I used to work for an arts festival called Art Rage. It was a relatively small local festival that provided small amounts of funding for chosen artists to produce new work and present it at the festival. It was the mid-90s and my employment was the direct result of a government employment scheme called New Work Opportunities. I did some event management, I learned some bookkeeping, which still comes in handy, and I learned how to drive a bus. Overall, it was a bit like an apprenticeship for whatever the hell it is I do now. I worked at Outrage for about five years in my early 20s. Not long after I left, a new director took over the festival and started to make some pretty rapid changes. Marcus Canning's first few years saw a lot of focus on a new venue, the bakery. It had originally been acquired by the previous director, Peter Grant. It now served as a permanent venue so Outrage, the organisation, could run events all year round. Plus they had a new income stream in the form of a regular bar. Of course, a lot of good times followed, and people came to love the bakery. But meanwhile, the actual festival part of Outrage seemed to take a bit of a back seat. I'm definitely opinionising here, but it felt like the festival program shrunk and became less inclusive. One year there was a festival without a printed program at all. For a little while, I think it went biennial, once every two years, but in some ways it felt like there wasn't a festival anymore. So by the year 2010, about eight years into Marcus Canning's directorship, it was interesting to learn that the organisation had a brave new plan for the future. I found out about this plan via an online conversation, started by Outrage for the purpose of getting feedback. They were thinking about starting a fringe festival like the ones in Adelaide and Edinburgh that were enormously successful. Is this something Perth might be interested in? A large part of what was going to make this possible was access to the digital infrastructure that had already been developed by other festivals. Outrage would be in possession of a new content management system, essentially an online engine which would allow the organisation to process large amounts of data related to artist and venue registrations program information and ticketing. Importantly, this had already been built and they didn't have to start from scratch. The festival would be based on an open access model, accessible to all artists via registration fee after filling out the forms on the website. The old idea of a curated festival like Outrage, which actually funded artists, would be sadly left behind, but the scale of something like The Fringe had the potential to open up opportunities to artists that weren't there before. 
My opinion back then was that this was a terrible idea and a giant waste of time. I mean, Outrage started as a fringe festival in the early 80s. It had grown to become its own thing. It felt like moving backwards to me. I thought, why not focus on making the current festival better and more accessible again? Not that it really mattered anyway. I mean, this wasn't going to change much. We were still in Perth, right? Nobody was going to come. Until they did. Thousands of them. Artists and audiences, as it turned out, from all over the world. In the years that followed, I think it's fair to say that the Perth Fringe World Festival has become a most unique and special event in the global arts calendar. It grew exponentially in a very short space of time from a pilot program in 2011 with 23 events. By 2018, it had grown to be the third biggest fringe festival in the world. So what do I know? Anyway, that's me, Dora the Explorer against the Predator! I'm Clara Cupcakes and I have a show called I Made This For You. Uh, it's performed on a table every night in the Pleasure Garden. That's funny, it's called I Made This For You. Was that is that actually on the sign? No, it's not. I haven't made a sign for it yet. Because every night the sign says something different. Oh yeah, so it's a different show every single night. It's basically, I, I pull out a, a suggestion out of the bucket um, the night before. Uh, during the day, the next day, I'll download some songs that I think might be appropriate for it in the direction that I think maybe the audience might go. Um, I usually try and give myself a few different options and sometimes I'm completely wrong. The first show I saw Clara do was called Dora the Explorer Gets Depression. It's performed outdoors on a large table surrounded by people eating dinner and drinking. Also, I feel like most of you can do that, but she was the only one that was confident enough. She encourages the often unsuspecting audience to make props for her show out of recycled cardboard. You get the impression she's kind of making it up as she goes along. to be here but then Fringe were like let's have your show and I was like all right I'll have the show. Okay how does that work because normally you would uh, a performer would pay a registration fee to be part of Fringe. It is a semi-curated festival um, compared to a lot of the festivals all over the world. It's very rare that Fringe's the actual Fringe itself manages any venues uh, whereas Fringe World actually does manage most of the the big sort of hub venues um, which I actually really prefer. Hub venues can be thought of as official fringe venues, whereas other venues, clubs, bars, theatres can also be part of fringe by paying a registration fee. But all the venues in an area like the Pleasure Garden in Northbridge are hub venues. If you've got a problem with your venue and you're in the Pleasure Garden, you can actually speak to the fringe about it and there will be a solution. Whereas at festivals like Edinburgh, um, the venues are run separately by big companies. And so if you've got a problem with the venue, you need to kind of speak to them directly but as the festival has grown, there's been a lot more venues pop up that aren't directly controlled by the Fringe team. So the hub venue shows seem to be well supported and their ticket prices have been going up in recent years. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of shows out on the fringe of the Fringe that seem to be doing it a bit tougher. Northern Ireland street performer Logie, his show is in a hub venue, but it's at the other end of town, which has been a bit quieter this year. He's talking here to Magnus. 
the, the only way a fringe festival happens is on the outskirts of another festival. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. like once you start to get bigger than the other festival, and Which then you, we are, yeah, yeah, and then it starts to bring in like the big, like La Soirée and stuff like that. That's yeah. taking like a ticket price for La Soirée. You could see three other good shows. Yeah. Instead absolutely. of seeing this one show, yeah. and it, I think like one of the things I used to love about Edinburgh, like about ten years ago, you'd be sitting around, and everyone would buy a round in, and it would get to the point where someone goes like, "It's my round." It's like, lads, there's a show starting at six. How about instead of I, instead of me buying the round, I'll just get everyone their ticket. And you were like, yeah, you could do that, and you yeah. just you're able to put a punt on something, and go and yeah. see any show at a at a ticket price that was was worth it. Yeah, about the price of a pint or two. Yeah, which is what my whole show is based on. Is, yeah. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. No, I always feel like it's like you can just you know, you can justify everything by the price of a drink. But once once the ticket prices get into that's not the price of a drink, that's a night out. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah. that's I'm slightly against that because I feel like then you've lost the you've lost the part of being fringe then. You're now yeah. just you're you want to be in the main festival now. I f I don't feel very good because we've put our ticket price up a bit as well. But I mean it's nowhere near, you know, like a, a La Soiree or you know one of those big guys. But it's um, because Perth is so far away, yeah. and we specifically, you know, get weirdos from far off lands. Or, you know, yeah. you've got some fucking weirdo in Sweden who's the only person in the world that can shoot ping pong balls out of his ass. You've got to get that guy, right? So you got to, you know, you've got to be able to pay all these people. Oh no, it is a tightrope though. You don't want to yeah. like the. It wouldn't be a fringe festival. It was like a sixty-dollar ticket, man. That's insanity. Yeah. Are there? Yeah. What's the most expensive ticket in town? Well, the right? what was it? The Darlyland opening was like ninety bucks. Well, the uh, I know the Blanc, Blanc de Blanc, which I seen oh, last yeah, night. Yeah. It's I think it's the they got to ninety dollars. Wow. Or I think it was no, it was, uh, maybe it was seventy-nine, ninety-nine or something. It was seventy-four dollars for a general ticket and eighty-nine dollars for a premium yeah. one. One of the things I find interesting in the fringe as well is, and I also I quite kind of I kind of quite like it, which is where, like the fees that all the performers would charge to do something, massively drops. Because <laughs> it's like you'd normally go like, oh yeah, I wouldn't do like yeah, someone asked me to do a ten minute slot, and you're like, how much is that normally? He's like, oh, seven hundred fifty dollars, and they're like, oh cool, we can offer you like maybe a high five and like a kebab but like a good kebab yeah and you're like yeah well wrapped yeah and you're like yeah yeah, yeah. it's like because i feel like there's a there's a little bit of there's a little bit more of a camaraderie here where yeah yeah and i feel like perth has it more than some of the other fringes Absolutely. I'm just gonna say that, yeah, yeah there's a lot more it seems people are a lot more i think that's always been a perth even when there's not the fringe on everybody works for everybody you yeah. know there's a lot more of that going on Another artist performing in one of the tents is Georgia from Yuck Circus. Yuck Circus is an elite acrobatic troupe of women. We are smashing stereotypes, we're kicking art in the face, and yeah, we're, like, we're not just throwing around women's issues, we're literally throwing women. So how did your show go? Absolute winner tonight. Yeah, we were worried about ticket sales, we're kind of like, oh, it's a bit of a half and half audience, but it just killed. We got a massive standing ovation and just, oh, yeah, it was a really good one. Not bad for a Sunday night? Not bad for a Sunday night in Perth. Yeah, I was a little bit worried. I mean, we, we opened on Monday and we closed on a Wednesday, so it's really random, but we've had our biggest nights on what we thought was going to be the quietest. I asked Georgia if her overall experience of the Fringe has been positive. You know, people always talk about Fringe being like, oh, you know, you, you never want to be in Fringe. You want to do Fringe once and then get out of it. But since being here, I've never had so much community support. It's like we walk down the street in Northbridge and people are like, it's the Yuck Girls! Or we're getting into the Uber and people are like chanting our names. And for Fringe itself, 
Yeah, they've just really been behind our backs. Like they, they realised when we did have the crowds and the, the support, they were like, oh shit, okay, let's support everybody. Let's put you some more advertising. Let's get you some more front of house. Let's really just work it out. And How many fringes have you done before? Never, never. Um, I mean, I've worked as an independent artist, but this is my first ever show as a company director. It's my first like big girl season. So we're doing Adelaide as well. And we were planning on like Edinburgh and Glastonbury 2020, but after the support we've had from Fringe here, we're just going to go for it. We're just going. Is your show going to make money? Hmm. Don't know. I mean, yeah, we've made we've made quite a bit, and all the girls are getting paid. Like the way that we, our company works, because it's fresh off the box. I'm 22. I don't have enough to pay a wage of seven people and run a show. So uh, from my own back and from winning Gasworks Circus Showdown, we had a little pile of money that we spent on making the show. And then from there, we're doing a cost-covered profit share. So it's like whatever bums we get on seats is how much the girls take home in the end. So it's really encouraging for us to be out in the street being like, come to our show. Not only we have a good time, but it means that we can survive as artists. I think if we didn't have such strong word of mouth support, we wouldn't really be anywhere because, you know, we've got Railed next door and then we've got 360 All Stars and we've got La Array that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of advertising. And we're little old yuck circus that spent about 300 bucks on a flyer. like. Yeah, we got to figure it out. What about ticket prices? Do you think ticket prices are fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, bigger budget shows have bigger budget tickets and people go to them because there's money in it. We're 20 bucks. That's way too cheap. Like, we should probably be charging 30 or 40. But saying that, no one knew who we were. We can't convince people, like, oh, just chuck us 40 bucks and come see a good show because no one's going to be as into it. I mean, cutting prices meant that we got more bums on seats, but then I guess it, yeah... Yeah. How many performers in your show? And seven. Seven performers and technical. We don't pay room. our own. Uh, it's That's fringe all done by the fringe. Fringe is supplied yeah. by tech. Yeah. With all this cabaret and circus, I also wanted to speak to someone doing some good old-fashioned theatre at the fringe. Ralph McCubbin Howell and Hannah Smith are over from New Zealand with a brand new show called Troll. They describe it as an all-ages lo-fi Wi-Fi fable. With Troll. We've got a season lined up in New Zealand which is a commission season so that's been great because it means this isn't the one staging we're doing of this show. Um, the costs of making the show have kind of already been covered and so the opportunity to perform it for two weeks and test it in front of an audience um, and fundamentally not the audience who commissioned it uh, is kind of has its own value even if the season doesn't make any money because I think in answer to your question it's almost impossible for us to make a profit coming to Perth and staying here because it's such a long yeah. way away. Yeah, from without, fun- yeah without yeah. any other funding or yeah. Yeah. funding to come over here to the New Zealand no. government? No, we we get funding to tour on occasion, but they're pretty stingy about touring to fringe festivals because it's like a, it's an artist's risk. They're sort of like, why are you even doing that? It's crazy. With the number of shows at festivals like this, it is a lot of competition. I mean, I love the idea of open access. Democracy is appealing, isn't it? You like want everybody who wants to make a show to be able to make a show. From a business perspective, there's a lot of competition. It's hard to make a buck. But it also means there's a concentration of, of audience and a concentration of art. Um, and, and for us, you know, I, I suppose it's similar here. But Perth and New Zealand are a long way away from um, other centres. And so we, we like coming to these big festivals here and in Edinburgh as well because it means there's that concentration. So you get to put yourself up on a platform alongside performers from all around the world. Um, and in terms of finances, for, for us, we're, 
were never really uh, expecting to make to make money on a fringe season. Um, so even when we go over to Edinburgh and even when we've, we've, we've got funding as we have sometimes in the past, the hope is that you really run in your work, you get it in front of some people and then you line up some seasons in the future. So Ralph and Hannah view the Fringe as a marketplace to sell their show, rather than worry about making a buck on the show they're doing at the Fringe. They like Perth for a number of reasons, but one of them is the Fringe World Artist Pass. At Perth Fringe, on your Artist Pass, you can go to any show if it's not sold out. No other Fringe does that. And that is amazing. Like We've seen all sorts of world-class acts that we would never stump up 90 bucks for, you know? Exactly. And so like that is pretty incredible Let alone the bad ones that you would otherwise end up yeah. accidentally spending 20 or 30 bucks on. But I love going to bad shows as well. It's all learning, isn't it? And especially if you don't have to pay. Okay, so a bad show doesn't make you feel as bad if you're not paying for it. That's true. One artist that was not involved in the Fringe this year, for reasons that will become apparent, is Thomas Ford. He's quite well known for his late night... Crap music rave party. You probably walk in, uh, there's a guy who's been dancing on the stage and lip syncing and just being a hyperactive dipshit for... Like, he's already been going for two hours when you've arrived and he's going to go for another four hours. He's part popping party poppers and throwing glow sticks and just generally being the biggest idiot in the room. Uh, and that's you? That's me, yeah. And uh, it's, it's just the, the, the shtick with that is basically how the hell is that guy still doing that? And that's a really light, fluffy, fun show that like, is real, like lots of people come to and it's really broad. And then I do these other shows that are um, quite dark and have been described as, I guess, like techno David Lynch cabaret, I guess. So it's uh, like you might walk into a basement venue at like midnight. I'm sitting on stage with the clear visual signs of a nervous breakdown already in progress. There's video on the screens that's slightly disturbing, but not too bad yet. Uh, and then I start singing at you and I'm singing about like how awful the experience that I'm having is and uh, you start to hate me because I'm very pretentious and then you, then I get your affections back because I'm also just a lovely charming guy and I push and pull with that for like the whole show and uh, you almost walk out but then like five minutes later I'm crowd surfing on you and it's all okay and you think you're happy. It's complicated. <laughs> complicate things more, Thomas was also a producer for the Noodle Palace Independent Venue Hub, which had a spectacular meltdown at last year's festival. I ran, uh, co-founded and, and co-produced uh, Noodle Palace for the first three years of its operation, uh, and then that went on for another three years. And then Wait, we'll get to that. But first, let's hear about Noodle Palace. Noodle Palace was uh, the first big independent hub at the Fringe Festival, um, and, and was designed to be for artists that were a bit left of centre that probably didn't fit into a Spiegel tent that were kind of more, I guess, like alternative comedy kind of artists. Uh, and that evolved with my business partners into the point where it kind of became some kind of fringe Las Vegas kind of scenario. I was the creative director of that program and then also just heavily involved in the production of it. So running a lot of the performer side of the side of things, the booking side of things and the in the early days the marketing and that kind of thing. And then the other lads would run the kind of the venue side of things, I guess, like the the bar side of things. I got paid a little retainer a little in the first year or so of Noodle Palace, but I was on a profit split and there were never any profits. 
it's worth going back in time a little bit with Thomas and getting some history on his experience with fringe festivals in different places before taking on this producer role for Noodle Palace in Perth. We took our first show to Adelaide Fringe in 2002 and then uh, had a really successful run for a couple of like boys with no money. We got good reviews, good audiences. It was just easy and we thought it would always be like that. And then both of us found out over the subsequent years that it wasn't going to be like that. I went back in 2006 with the show that I started doing of electronic music called Thomas Ford's Cabaret of Death. Uh, Adelaide full body rejected me during, like that was the worst like month ever. I learned so many things about fringe audiences from how much they hated that show, which was not a horrible show. It was a show I'd been doing in punk bars to like happy punks for a very long time. And uh, when I took it to Adelaide, they were like, you are too weird. To be fair, Thomas's shows are pretty weird, but I think kind of frightening and beautiful. So in 2006, I swore off fringe festivals and that I was never going to do them. And I just started touring Australia on my own, doing pubs and just like DIY venues and playing wherever the hell I could. And then I was like, I might go and do the Edinburgh Fringe just for shits and giggles in 2012 because I'd always wanted to do it. It had been sold to me as like this all-night experience that like everyone, like there's shows happening like around the clock, like 3 a.m. You want to go see like some like weird guy from like Belfast like talking about maths? You can do that, but you can't because uh, Edinburgh is the Canberra of Scotland. Uh, so it's uh, it's not like that at all. It's a fringe festival. It's just a big one. So, um, but I went... I had a really successful season, even though I was like in the wrong end of town in a uh, gothic theme pub uh, in the basement. That sounds like you'd fit in really well. It was great. And it was like 12.30 at night, every night. And it was for free. People came in and it was for donations. And it ended up getting like this huge award nomination and all this stuff. So I felt like it was like, ah, this is my context. Like I can be the weird late night guy. Cool. Let's do that. Is there a little whisper in your head at that at this point where you're going, hey, this has happened before? Yes. You have a really good first season. <laughs> the next three years of shit. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. But basically my thought process was like, well, okay. Like, so it didn't work in Adelaide, but this is Edinburgh and maybe it's just that like I needed to come to the big leagues and just kick ass, right? Um, so I went back. I ended up doing seven years of Edinburgh, uh, which – Mostly went well, uh, up and down, uh, but in the end with that, I ended up like two years ago losing $20,000 and that's venue hire and, and marketing and PR and accommodation and flights and all these different things. It's, it's, it's very, very expensive festival even to do cheaply. Like the cheapest I've ever done it was the first year and I had a budget of $10,000 still. It's kind of a weird up and down, kind of happy, sad journey that, but after doing 2012, I was like, ah, okay, cool. I think I get this. The people I was working with at the time, Jump Climb, um, who were sort of half managing me and I was half self-managed, were interested in running a fringe venue. It had always been kind of on their to-do list. Um, And they were running Beaufort Street Festival at the time and a few other things. So they had had some skin in the game. It kind of made sense. and then we decided that we were going to do it together. I had the, the knowledge and the contacts and 
basically the experience and training with my theatre degree and all the various DIY things that I've done over the years to be able to put together this venue. And, and they had the bar stuff that I had no idea and the, how to even get a venue and how to just do all that kind of like corporate crap that I'm still not interested in. We did really well. We're up on Beaufort Street in a house that we converted into like a two-room thing that was just like an occupational health and safety nightmare. Like in hindsight, that was my favourite one. That was really what I always wanted to do with that project. Like I just wanted small theatres with cool weird people that we treated really well and marketed the hell out of. Naturally, with the success came growth. We ended up taking on the contract to do an outer suburban venue in Midland, which ended up being really super successful. Took over like just bigger and bigger spaces. Still never making any money with this project, but growing in stature and our confidence in what we could do uh, until we landed a contract with uh, Central TAFE to activate their rooftop space, which was like just an amazing deal. They basically sponsored the venue and we were able to put these venues into their educational institution while it was not open. At that point, it became a bit of a monster. Bar income started to really come in because the rooftop that we had activated, which was, to their credit, mostly jump climbs work, uh, was kicking ass. Like, they were doing crazy numbers up there, just selling alcohol by the bucket load. That kind of became more and more the focus, and then the shows to support that. Uh, it attracts what we call in Perth the Western Suburbs crowd. Uh, so it was, like, private school kids and, like, just people that come from generational wealth. Lots of them are lovely. I have lots of friends from the Western Suburbs, but it's, it's, it's uh, every city has that area, I think. And it was great to have the financial support that came from those people buying beer, right? But those people aren't interested in cool, weird shit. They might come and see a show, but they're going to see something that's a bit more circusy and a bit more mainstream. It just got to the point where it looked like, like the more we talked about it, the more the direction that the other two lads wanted to go was to start talking to the big comedy companies in Australia and, and start negotiating for mainstream comedians and stuff like that. And like, it's not that I can't do that. I just would never want to. Like, that's a boring world. Was there a point where you questioned that in yourself as well, though, where you realised there was a fork in the road and you could either go this way or continue your traditional path? Um, I think... I mean, honestly, if if the place had been making enough money that I was making a bucket shit ton of money, probably you'd be a bit like, well, I'm putting in all this hard work, but at least I'm getting something back from it. And for the rest of the year, I can go and be a wanky artist, right? When, when you run a fringe venue, like at that scale, that's that was a five or six room program plus the Outer Suburban program in Midland, which was two rooms. So that's six months worth of work. It's got to be artistically satisfying. It's always churlish when you're a venue runner to like complain to your artists or whatever because they expect that you're making money because they're paying you money, right? They're paying you rent. They're bringing in ticket sales and stuff like that. So they're expecting that you've done the maths well enough that you're making money. And if you haven't, then that's on you. No one's ever really like, woohoo, thanks for, thanks for running an awesome venue, which is understandable. But the reason is that they think that you're doing it because you're making lots of money here. Yeah. What happened in 2018? So the venue grew and grew. Uh, it grew largely, I think it's safe to say, that the festival had no control over it at that point that it grew to. Uh, it became the thing that they'd always dreaded and that I'd always dreaded, which is uh, there's a venue called the Garden of Unearthly Delights in Adelaide, which has just destroyed that Fringe Festival, just smashed it. Um, 
it's just if they charge really high rent, they they basically just have a monopoly on being the premier space in town. And that's Adelaide thinks that that space is the Fringe Festival. And that's what happened last year for a lot of people uh, in Perth, uh, around Noodle Palace, of a specific demographic. They really narrowed down what they were doing to Noodle Palace, which itself kind of stopped having Fringe shows, farmed them out to bars around town in a separate program and concentrated on one big arts tent that had hypnotism and magic and that kind of stuff in it a well-executed site they were on the foreshore of of the swan river in elizabeth key which is a very expensive space as well which is i think probably the root of how this all went down because it was like big money rent to get that space from from what i understand they had received a bunch of money in the middle of the festival an advance payout of artist funds from ticketing which they spent on cash flow which is actually a pretty common occurrence in festivals in Australia it's basically what Soundwave did there's been big legal cases in Australia around this kind of crap and then like uh, subsequently when the second half of the ticketing payment came out they paid off some artists I know that some people did get their full amount but left like a huge amount of people in the lurch and suppliers as well but um Mostly artists, which was the big local controversy, I guess, because we've had other major arts projects and organisations fall over in the last five years, but they've never really left artists in the lurch in the way that that fall down did. So, how much money was it? Hundreds of thousands. So it's not like millions of dollars. So, but like in terms of artists, like Matt Howe was in the newspaper. He's a hypnotist, and he was in the the big tent on Elizabeth Key that I was just talking about. He lost eighty thousand dollars. And smaller artists would lose like, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars. Josh Glantz lost thirty thousand dollars. He's a clowning performer. And like those amounts of money when you're a touring artist and your cash flow is wrapped up in like doing, let's say, the Australian fringe circuit where you're doing Perth, Perth runs into Adelaide, Adelaide runs into Melbourne Comedy Festival. And if you're really keen, you can go into New Zealand after that. Like all those have like advanced costs. And if you're losing fifteen K you're ruined. Wasn't there a little uh, rescue fund that Outrage put up for the artists? Uh, they refunded their ticketing fees. So when you book a ticket with Fringe World, I believe you pay an outside ticketing fee So as a person, but the Fringe also charges an inside fee to the performer for each ticket. Like it varies, but we're talking about like 3 or $4 a ticket. But that adds up over a season, so they were able to refund quite a bit of that. But so they should. Like, so they should. Like in that payment process, even just how I've described it, you can see how they're involved in that. Yeah. Do you think they should have done more? Could they have done more? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they should have not done that payment process that way. I mean, it was something that was happening. I wasn't with the money side of that business uh, when I was running it. But, um, you know, that that mid-season payment of artist funds to a venue to enable cash flow, I can see exactly why you do it. It makes sense. But also, like... This happens and while on one, one hand like you can see why they would do that to support the venue so that the venue can continue to exist for the season, the risk is that something like this happens and if that does happen, like it's on you, you know, like you've got to take responsibility for it and I feel like they didn't. A report by the Noodle Palace Liquidator found that Jump Climb owed a total of $672,000, about 610 of which they wouldn't be able to pay back to performers, contractors and the Australian Tax Office. The Fringe Festival ended up paying back about $85,000 to artists from the ticketing fees. 
many saw this as the festival taking responsibility and supporting artists where they weren't legally obligated to do so. The more cynical view is that it was a masterful play of media manipulation, placing Outrage or the Fringe Body as the rescue team, when really they should have been much more responsible for their own business model. They have fixed it in the sense that the Fringe is now paying artists directly. So previously you had to invoice your venue. So all money would go to, say, a jump climb, and then I would invoice jump climb for my money. Thomas explains that's not the only change happening in Fringe world at the moment. This year they've changed their model a little bit, so they're producing shows as well, which they've done a little bit of in the past with big circus shows. Now there seems to be a core program of very produced work, which I have a big problem with because how am I meant to compete with that for a start? But also they're spending money, (laughs) well, you know, state investment, but also from artists that we have earned to compete with us. It's baffling. As much as Thomas is unhappy with the fringe, I get the feeling he still would like to see a change and succeed. But what about jump climb? Do you talk to those guys at all? I or? just, I just can't. Yeah, because um, I spent. I mean, I, I still have a lot of relationships with artists. I mean, I'm touring artists myself, and I was very, very hands on when I was working. Well, in all of the programs that I've worked in. So when all this went pear shaped and they had no one to talk to, I spent like I was on Facebook chat for like a month. It was full on. So uh, it was hard not to go through that and just be like, cool. And then, yeah, like. It, it's it's also difficult uh, when when you look at the way that they handle that situation and the way that they they talked about the money around that situation, and you've trusted somebody else to look after the money side of a business that you're collaborating on. Like I just I can't have a friendship with them again. Do you know what I mean? Like I just can't. It just sucks because they were kind of my best mates for a while. Yeah, it's just fucked. Yeah, like they just they. There was a point when that when they took took that second payment, they had to have known that they were going bankrupt when they took that payment and then went bankrupt, right? So they made a decision to still take those funds and then go into bankruptcy. Like, fuck you guys. I guess they were in self-preservation mode. Yeah, but like, yeah. ew. Mm. Like, then what are you doing this for? Do you know what I mean? Like, what if you're if you're genuinely trying to do something that is positive for either Perth or artists, you, you just fucked it completely. They'll probably hear this, so hi, guys. I wonder if Thomas is ever going to do a show at the festival again. Fringe World, it's hard because, like, it's like I've always graded that festival on a sliding scale because Fringe Festivals are, like, the kind of arts festival that you would come up with if you were the Liberal Party and, like, wanted to have an arts program. Let's get everyone to like be arts entrepreneurs and like spend all this money. Yeah, I mean, so within fringe festivals, generally, I would say that Fringe World are about an eight out of ten. They're very good, and they've done an amazing job in a city that is fucking hard, right? Like arts in Perth is not easy, and they managed to get an enormous amount of momentum into that festival that like no one expected. I mean, I still think the Fringe is the best thing to happen to this city ever. I mean, it's the reason my you know my family eats food (laughs) it seems to me like they always learn from the lessons of the previous year uh i wouldn't have too many complaints the street performing is one of the things as someone who is like involved on the stage and the street 
the stage stuff is really well organized. Everyone listens to everything being suggested. Yeah. But the state uh, the street performers who always build crowds, always bring yeah. people in, always do every other fringe in the world, street performing is yeah. has its own section. It's got its yeah. own big build, big draw. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Perth is the only festival I've been to in the world that the street performers are so far down the list I would on being important agree. is ridiculous. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. I've just had to have a conversation with three of the the staff who are all lovely and yeah. you couldn't you couldn't fault them but they don't have any power and the people who I want to speak to yeah. have said that they will maybe have a meeting with me at one point. Yeah. yeah so yeah. my new plan is apart from one bouncer who's a Serbian guy who's quite dead on, I reckon I could take most of the other bouncers. So my game plan is to just start setting up where it needs he to be. He is a big fella, by the way. I yeah. Because street, the thing I love about street performing is it just leads everyone into the idea of shows. Yeah. And it brings an energy about that then rolls on into every other show and it's open to everyone. It doesn't isolate anybody. It just brings just, the only thing it can do is be good. Also, I think what a lot of performers need to realize about festivals is that you, you can't just do your show. There's a, a, like, you need to be picking up other gigs, you need to be doing, you know, you need to be versatile, you need to be able to be on a bunch of lineups because the fringe is essentially one huge multi-faceted lineup. So if you can, if you can be on a cabaret lineup, if you can be on a comedy lineup, if you can be on a burlesque show, if you can MC, if you can do kids stuff, that's going to help you immensely. Like you really need to, to be, um, you know, a human of all trades and master of like, some of them a little bit in order to really succeed at Fringe. I think that that's really important um, to to be able to get yourself out there so that people know who you are. Sometimes it's hard, but you know, being a self-produced performer is quite hard, and that's not to say that it shouldn't be easier. I think the punters are starting to get spread thin, and actually someone told me that this year there was 120 or 150 less acts than last year, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, because it's, it's better to increase the quality rather than the quantity. Uh, otherwise you end up uh, taking money out of the pockets of the artists and um, everyone's just struggling to make a buck. So let's get more high quality uh, performances and um, have lots of full houses rather than having 20 people in every room. That was James who I met standing in line for a show called The Jesus Miracle Lab. They were playing this song. I guess Ave Maria fit with the theme but a few days later I was working on a separate show, Secret Suppers, Seven Deadly Sins, Immersive Dinner. And I heard this song again. This time it was being performed by vocalist Elisa Voss and accompanied by Isaac Masters on piano. After the season, we made a recording and that's what you're hearing now. Thanks Elisa and Isaac. And thanks everybody for speaking to me so candidly. All the credits are up on the show notes at quantumrabbit.net. If you want to support the show, you can leave a review, you can send a nice email, or you can buy a t-shirt. We'll let Clara Cupcakes take us out, shuffling through her bucket of ideas. Uh, so I have Aladdin, but it's been spelled all Aladdin with two L's. Pure blades of feel, the walrus of Wolf Street. A fable about a cable in a stable on a table. That's interesting. Rocky Horror Show. I mean, that already exists, but I'd do it. The Sound of Music, but favourite things as Rings by Ariana Grande. Ooh. Life of a Blind Chicken. 
Right. Lost in Space, Wizard of Oz, Jim Carrey phrases. Oh, some of them do make me laugh and then I do have to pick some out. The Lion King, The Greatest Showman, Lion King, is that two Lion Kings? Tony Abbott goes to Mardi Gras. 